Uh, welcome to this episode of the Bretton Goods podcast. I have a very, very special guest here, Michael Green, who is Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager at, Sli- at Simplify ETFs. Hi, Mike. Uh, nice to have you on the show. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So uh, last year in your paper, uh, Policy in the Time of Pandemics, you wrote, we, we believe the options we purchase are undervalued because of a flaw in option pricing models that assume the efficient markets hypothesis and that, these crack, that, this, that this flaw is going to grow over time because of the growth of passive uh, investing. Could you explain the two um, parts here. The first is that option models are flawed because they assume the EMH. The second is that why is the magnitude of this flaw going to increase because of passive investing? Sure. So the core of the observation that option pricing depends upon the efficient market hypothesis is tied to what's called put call parity or risk neutral arbitrage. So the way that you can model a option contract is by disaggregating it into its component parts, right? So if you're long a stock, a stock is effectively being long a call on the underlying security, being short a put on the underlying security, having a fully funded treasury bill at the strike of that security and having some access to the dividend stream, okay? Um, You can synthetically create options, particularly at short time horizons by using combinations of what's referred to as delta hedging. And when you buy an option, that option has to be struck against what's referred to as the forward price. That forward price makes certain assumptions that are tied to the efficient market hypothesis. In particular, it assumes the idea that there can be no information known at some point in the future that's not already discounted to a certain extent today, right? So the information content is what sits at the core of the efficient market hypothesis. And that implies that there is no what's referred to as drift. In other words, we can't know what direction a security is going to move in the absence of information. And that information is automatically discounted in the current pricing. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, yeah. uh, Okay, so now, now we need to dig into the assumptions behind the EMH. And so behind the EMH, One of the core assumptions is that markets are nearly perfectly elastic. In other words, very large sums of money can be put to work in the market or in a particular security and only modestly or not at all impact the price of that security. The traditional models would suggest that every dollar that goes into a market, for example, would cause the market to increase or decrease by something less than one penny, right? So less than 1% of the money that's going in It's kind of the traditional framework for modeling that. Well, my work on passive and and systematic investing suggests is that the the systematic uh, deployment of capital by price agnostic investors, in other words, investors who do not care what price they buy at, they simply have been given an instruction to buy, exacerbates that core assumption, that idea of elasticity. And what we're actually finding out now, and the academic papers have begun to come out after I wrote my piece and well after I began my research, is that the markets are actually quite inelastic. So last year, Gabay and Koijin, Xavier Gabay at Harvard and Ralph Koijin at University of Chicago published a paper uh, titled The Inelastic Market Hypothesis, in which they postulated and, and identified empirical support for the observation 
that each dollar that goes into the market creates roughly $5 worth of price change or market value change. In other words, that implies that the market is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500 times more elastic, more inelastic than the underlying assumptions had been. When passive money flows into markets, it causes valuations to rise and creates a very discern discernible drift that exacerbates the higher and higher passive share gets. And so where my work would differ from Gabay and Koijin is actually in suggesting that that five number, that $5 increase that they have identified actually is rising over time as the participants themselves become more and more inelastic. And I would just highlight that a passive investor, by definition, is inelastic using the economic term, right? So price inelasticity refers to how much does demand or supply change in response to an increase in price. An elastic demand curve is one in which demand falls significantly as price increases. In the case of passive investing or systematic investing strategies, often what you actually see is perfect inelasticity and in some ways within the market, you actually see elasticity beyond 100% because many of these strategies will allocate increasing quantities of capital to something that goes up in price, right? They have a momentum bias to them. So that's changing the structure of markets and the behavior of markets versus what we've seen historically and was the core of the observation that I would make. That is simply exacerbated in options which rely on those assumptions to set prices. Okay. Uh, it was very technical de yeah. description, probably more than you were looking for. I apologize. No, no, no. It, it, I, I think it was about the level I was uh, looking for. But um, the most common counter argument to this says that active managers will short the stocks that are that are overvalued because of the passive flows, and they'll uh, go go long on those um, which are undervalued. But um, why doesn't this happen? So there are two components to it. The first is, is that people actually do try to short these securities. And we've seen that blow up in people's faces over the past year and a half in particular, as shorts become subject to that inelastic passive bid, right? So I can choose to short something. I can believe that I have information that justifies the idea that either it's overvalued or that it's a fraud. But if the dominant flows that come into the market are in the form of passive and passive operates under a very simple model that says the right price for something is whatever its last price was. And in addition, that flow of passive capital contributes to the prices rising. That means that I as a short am now going to face underperformance and I'll get fired. And then I have to reverse my position. And that's exactly what we've seen throughout 2020 and 2021. Really since about 2016 has been, you know, basically a death sentence for shorters. Aren't there other ways that they can try to correct these? Wouldn't they, uh, for example, uh, a, a common way is to buy leaps, uh, uh, puts, uh, long-term puts, or, or to buy general uh, short-term data put options. But is, is, is short the, the, the the only way to benefit from the overvaluation? Well, no, the easiest way to benefit from the trending overvaluation, the rising overvaluation is just to be long. And I think no. this is one of, the, one of the critical errors that people make in castigating value managers, for example, right? I mean, 
based on the uh, commentary you see on Twitter and elsewhere, you would assume that value stocks have just been terrible performers. The reality is, is that they've done extraordinarily well. The problem has actually been on the shorts, right? So the S&P 500 value index is up somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% a year over the last decade. The, um, the shorts have been up somewhere in the neighborhood of 18% a year, right? So the, the problem has not been the longs. They all benefit from this underlying trend of passive that is raising valuations and increasing the prices of securities. They just have chosen to try to short something that benefits even more. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Uh, speaking of short uh, of short sellers getting hammered, um, there was the uh, hypothesis, at least the narrative that there was a large options impact on uh, AMC and GameStop over the uh, f- first few months of this year. But the SEC report that came out recently said that you know uh, the numbers were were not quite quite clear in which direction it happened. What's your view on that? Why, um, what, what explains the, uh, was there any large options impact on the uh, SEC, uh, on the GME and, and, and AMC stocks? Well, I think there's no question that there was a large option impact, at least initially. Among other things, um, you know, many hedge funds have historically taken advantage of strategies where they look at high volatility stocks that they believe are overvalued or have poor fundamentals, and they will short call options against those positions, right? It is a way of shorting without necessarily having to go out and borrow the shares or obtain them, right? So when you hear a lot of complaints about naked shorting, et cetera, oftentimes what you're actually hearing about is people who have sold call options, for example, right? Um, This is again, where that inelasticity comes into play. So under market theory, the idea that you can synthetically create that call option, if I am a hedge fund and I want to sell a deep out of the money call option, meaning high strike, or let's say the price of something is 50, I want to sell a hundred strike call option. The way that's done is not that there's somebody else out there that is necessarily buying that call option from me. There will be a market maker who will charge me a premium right? So undervalue that call option relative to most models, but will create that call option for me synthetically by selling the call option. And then what's referred to as delta hedging the underlying, right? So buying a fraction of a share or, you know, one share for every hundred units of call options that you're buying, for example, you're selling. Um, That leaves the market maker in a position where they have to hedge their position as the security rises in price. And if we have this higher inelasticity, remember that the market maker now shows up to buy a fraction of the share price. If that fraction buy can cause the price to increase, well, now their delta hedge ratio has risen. So they have to buy some more shares and buying those more shares in an inelastic market can cause prices to rise even further, which means they then have to buy even more shares, right? Now at every step in this process, the market maker really doesn't care about the direction that it's going in as long as they remain delta hedged. What they're actually profiting from is the difference between the implied and realized volatility in that scenario. But the hedge fund, the person who actually thought they were shorting this this riskless call, right? Creating just this additional premium with what's effectively leverage 
is suddenly facing a capital call, right? They have to post margin against the rising value of that call option that they're now short. When they go to buy back that call option or they themselves go to cover the underlying exposure and they'll often try to do it by Delta hedging themselves, that can exacerbate this process. And, and my, my belief is, is that that played a significant role in the GameStops and AMCs, et cetera. That was a, a very clear explanation. Um, you've worked with many funds over the course of your career. What qualities make, what psychological qualities make good hedge fund managers successful? Well, so I, I think the interesting thing about being a hedge fund manager is, is that it's you know much like many other careers, right? There's a threshold level of intelligence that requires you to you know, have a certain level of capability but beyond that, that's largely wasted and it becomes much more about, do you have a passion for what you're researching? Do you have a constitution that lends itself well to risk transfer, right? Because remember, again, your job as an investor is basically to step in and provide the other side of a trade of somebody who is doing something that you believe is non-economic, right? So they're selling a stock, not because they think, because it is too expensive, but because they need to buy a house or they feel passionately about another stock that has emerged or, you know, they're facing financial distress or they can't handle the fact that its price has fallen to a certain point and they can no longer post the margin against it. Right. So you're, you're trying to identify that, but that inevitably means that there's going to be somebody else who disagrees with you. Right now that requires a certain degree of confidence or perhaps overconfidence in order to execute a trade once you really start thinking about it in that framework. I find that, that, that many neophyte investors tend to seek comfort in other people's opinions, right? So everybody thinks this is a great idea. Well, if everybody thinks it's a great idea, then it's probably a terrible investment, right? Because quite simply, everybody will have bought in unless you can identify why they can't. Right. And so there are situations that prevent people from buying in. Right. So cryptocurrencies, for example, many institutional firms have been prevented from buying until the past few years when, you know, the characteristics of custody, et cetera, were addressed within the market. Right. Making sure you actually owned your Bitcoin, that you weren't exposed to something like Mt. Gox that opened up a pathway to additional buying which of course now people point to and say, oh, institutions have gained increased confidence. Therefore I should buy. Again, I would look at that and say, wait a second, all, all of the challenges have been addressed. <clears throat> what makes you think that demand is going to increase dramatically from here? Uh, on that specific topic, uh, how do you value cryptocurrencies? Because at least for proof of stake ones, you can uh, sort of do the DCF or future gas fees. But, uh, the, but the proof of work ones uh, where only miners get the gas fees, it's not quite clear how you value them. It's not quite, quite clear that you should. Right. Um, ultimately, what you're describing in that situation is a use token. Right. So it is um, in the case of proof of stake, there is a very clear use. Right. I put my capital at risk in the same way that I do in a stock market. In the case of a proof of work, as you're pointing out, it's basically akin to saying, well, there's value because accountants are doing the work. Right. That's what the miners are, is they're, they're you know, glorified accountants. Right glorified as maybe the two of the wrong word, right? I didn't mean it pejoratively. Um, yes, there could be a premium for something associated with that, but unless there is an actual use case along the network that that 
accounting system um, creates value for, then it ultimately, you know, the, the, the question of what does, how do you value a proof of um, a proof of work as a store of value? Well, it truly depends on what everyone else is willing to value it at. Right. So this is the, you know, the comparison is often made to gold, gold, I would argue is broadly misunderstood. The assumption historically has been that it had value and therefore governments pegged to it. And therefore it was quote unquote money. I would argue the reverse actually happened because governments chose to accept it for taxes and chose to set a fixed price for its exchange in terms of the currency that created the value associated with that particular element on the periodic table, right? It fit the characteristics and requirements, but this is one of the reasons that you hear me critique Bitcoin is ultimately, I think that the problems associated with gold have been magnified in the Bitcoin world and create very adverse conditions for wealth creation. Right, another thing to add is that weirdly, sort of the, when, when the first bimetallic standard was created, when you know, Newton put his ratio of 15.5 silver to one gold, he sort of massively undervalued gold and overvalued silver. And that meant that people just hoarded silver and spent gold, which is like, at, at, at some point, if a government ever does a cryptocurrency price, uh, uh, control, which, 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 you know, isn't an outlandish possibility today, they'll probably mess up that way too. And, and, and one's going to be hoarded and the other isn't. And that uh, small, um, that, that, that uh, small observation aside, uh, why is your Twitter handle ProfLum99? So it's actually a joke. I, I never anticipated that my Twitter um, profile would gain any form of a following whatsoever. Um, it really, I, initially I was participating in Twitter for the exchange of ideas, the information content, et cetera. I, I think um, in all seriousness, um, for breaking news, Twitter is probably, and, and breaking economic analysis, Twitter is probably as good, if not better than most of the formal networks. The number of bank analysts that participate on there, um, the number of talented buy-siders that offer commentary at no charge, um, the number of experts that are exchanging opinions on Twitter dwarfs almost any other platform that I can think of, including the Bloomberg instant chats, et cetera, which uh, you know, is, has been fascinating to watch those deteriorate in favor of DMs on Twitter and uh, to a lesser extent Signal. Um, you know, those networks have deteriorated in value relative to the, um, the social networks. Um, I, I went on there with a uh, joke handle that emerged in the 1990s when I was at the University of Pennsylvania and Wharton School of Business, and I began a PhD program. And, you know, my name is Mike Green. Um, Mr. Green is a character from the board game Clue. As a joke, I put Prof Plum, Professor Plum, as my online handle, um, because that is another character in Clue, and I was studying for a PhD at the time. Um, so it, that's how that started. And then the second component is, is that my avatar on Twitter and Prof Plum 99, by the way, is just a reflection that somebody else had already taken Professor Plum, right? I have no idea who they are and I have no desire to, to you know, change anything, but that's where Prof Plum 99 comes from. My avatar is Vicini from The Princess Bride. And um, Vicini is, you, if you've seen the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, you have to watch the movie. It's a, it's a cultural touchstone, um, one, of, one of the practically perfect movies out there and practically perfect stories. 
the character of Vicini fancies himself the world's smartest man. And um, what I always joke about is the fact that anytime I have approached a trade from the standpoint of somebody else is stupid, that trade has actually worked against me. In the movie, The Princess Bride, the character Vicini assumes somebody else is stupid, doesn't understand the rules of the game, consumes poison and dies, not to ruin it for those who have not seen it. Um, the point that I'm making is one, uh, you know, never think of yourself as the world's smartest man, always be aware that somebody else knows the rules of the game better than you. And two, to the extent that you can figure out the rules of the game, that is probably the most important thing that you can do. So spend less time trying to digest facts and more time trying to actually figure out the game that you are playing. What do you get right about Twitter that, that other people don't? What's the Michael Green uh, insight on Twitter that's, that's missed by the rest of into it, like not to the company, but to the service. Not Twitter, the company, but Twitter, the service. Um, I mean, look, I, th I think that Twitter has huge pros and huge cons associated with it. Um, unlike a Facebook, for example, I still find it relatively easy to have voices penetrate the sphere or the bubble that I inhabit within FinTwit. Um, as I've become more popular, it's, it, you know, and my following has increased, I encounter more of what are referred to as trolls. And so I've had to become more liberal with my blocking and muting. Um, that hurts some of that value, right? It's harder for somebody to break in. But I continue to be amazed by very smart, new young people and even retirees that suddenly come out from behind a compliance wall, for example, and begin posting on Twitter and offering extraordinary insights. And so, you know, it would be great if there was a way, if there was almost a de-escalation component associated with Twitter, which is to take away the worst components of it, the vitriol and hate and anger, et cetera, and emphasize the value creation, right? That requires curation on my part. Um, if that could be made easier, that would obviously be great. But Again, there's, there's nothing that currently compares to the social network Twitter in terms of its ability to rapidly disseminate information and ideas. 240 characters is in many ways perfect to capture people's attention and it forces people to condense stuff in a manner that, you know, medium posts are great and other writing forms are fantastic. As you mentioned, you've read some of my stuff. Um, but there's also tremendous value in almost the haiku format of Twitter, right? Cutting something down, editing it, being brief and clear in your thoughts. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan in a lot of ways. Um, I usually save this question for the end, but your thing on, on young people and prompted me, where should ambitious people in finance go? What's the best place if, if a college graduate or somebody entering college says, I, 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 I want to do something that, that leads to the highest impact on my career? Um, I mean, look, the, the, there, there are two separate um, paths that have emerged. Um, and, and one that has really been taken away, unfortunately. So the traditional path into financial markets was to come up through a bank training program, right? To sit on a prop desk, to work at a bank, gain experience in the functioning of a particular area of a market, build up a level of expertise and awareness of the flows and awareness of the players in the game, and then step over to the buy side 
hopefully trans, you know, transferring that role where you're sitting at the center of the information universe to a role in which you are actually deploying capital and putting it at risk. Um, unfortunately, the Volcker rule in 2008 took away a lot of the prop desk taking risk-taking capability within banks, reduced the attractiveness of those training programs and the investment that were made behind them. And today that, that path has been reduced at the same time that the assault on active management, hedge funds, and long-only vehicles has reduced the role for discretionary um, portfolio managers. You know, so one of my frustrations is, is that there just aren't actually a lot of young people stepping into roles, right? It used to be far more common for me to see somebody who, you know, as I came up through the system, to see a 29-year-old be the head of equities at Goldman Sachs, or to see a 35-year-old who, you know, was, had founded his own hedge fund 10 years before, that's increasingly rare. And, you know, my single biggest observation is that what we have seen is an attempt for people to grow basically through raising their social media profile, right? So, um, you know, almost the information surface, uh, 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 approach, right? Where people are on Twitter and looking for people with insight. Um, I, I'm very mixed on the effectiveness of that path, right? I think there's, again, very smart people that are emerging. I think it is challenging to learn how to manage assets without sitting at the knee of somebody who is actively managing them in a discretionary or quantitative manner. Um, understanding what the risks are, understanding what can go wrong, having somebody say, yes, I understand that doesn't fit in five years worth of data, but if we go back 20 years, here's what happened, or if we're playing this in a different way. I, I think in a lot of ways, those dynamics around mentorship have been lost in the industry. And so one, I think it's harder. I think there's fewer roles that are available. And the second one that I would, would highlight is, is that broadly speaking, the degree of financialization that we have today has reached a point that I would for the most part, encourage people not to go into finance. I just think until we actually resolve this issue around passive investing and systematic strategies, it's going to be a very challenging environment. Um, and I'm not sure who's going to be standing at the end of it. But if they don't go into finance, they're just going to put all their money in index funds, right? Uh, it's, it, it, it doesn't seem like that's the clearest way to reducing the power of passive investing. Um, well, you know, if you, if you think about it in terms of uh, a, a dynamic like um, competition, right? I, I would argue that, that you have to choose when you're going to fight your battle. And the, the time is probably just now emerging. But in order to survive, active managers have had to basically mimic passive strategies. They've had to drop their valuation analysis. They've had to drop their single stock analysis. They've had to move more towards the benchmark in terms of momentum framing, et cetera. Um, I think those bad habits are increasingly being built into a generation of managers. who are gonna find it very hard to do something different going forward. So I, it's, you know, if you have one bullet in the gun, be very careful when you fire. How does the passive investing distortion end? Because people aren't going to stop putting their money into passive funds. It, it doesn't seem that way. Uh, it also doesn't seem as if, um, you know, a drop in the stock market, which might lead to uh, mass redemptions would be 
anywhere close to what American society or government would tolerate. What's the end game of all of this? Well, I think you just described it, right? It's, it, it, it is a crash that is society, societally intolerable, and therefore we suspend the functioning of markets. Right. That's, I mean, that's the core of the concern that I have, which is to say, yes, this feels great. You've heard me use the analogy. It's like driving a car uphill with no brakes. Who cares? Right? It doesn't matter until you crest the hill. And then suddenly it turns into panic. And you know, it, you're going to ignore every warning on the way up because anytime somebody says there are no brakes on this car, you simply lift your foot off the accelerator and it slows naturally. Right, it feels like there's no particular issue associated with it. Um, I, I think it's very hard to expect this system to do anything other than go until it breaks. And so again, it, it simplify like what we're trying to do is build products that allow people to continue to participate, but recognize that the probability of a crash is rising. Uh, a question I've, I've learned from Tyler Carvin is, uh, what's the best case against you? What's the best case against your in index funds causing bubble uh, thesis? Um, well, so first, I think the best case is relatively weak, but it would be something along the lines of, no, the efficient market hypothesis is largely true. And the recent analysis on increasing inelasticity in markets associated with the growth of passive um, are not true, right? Now, the, the work that I did was constructed on a theoretical basis prior to the emergence of the academic work that is beginning to support the empirical analysis. Um, so I, like, in all honesty, I think that the, the case against me is increasingly weak. Um, but if you wanted to make arguments that there were alternatives that are driving this dynamic, you could certainly point to monetary policy and the dynamics of insurance that the central bank reaction function has created, right? So if the central bank cuts interest rates in response to a financial markets decline, you know, the argument is, is that that is creating um, relative cheapness in equities that is attracting additional buyers. Again, I don't actually think that's the mechanism in play. I think um, a professor at Harvard, Jonathan Parker, uh, I'm sorry, at MIT, um, Jonathan Parker has written a paper called uh, Financial Innovation in the Case for Target Date Funds um, that identifies the actual mechanism that's in play. So portfolios that are constructed that systematically rebalance between bonds and equities naturally, mechanically will buy equities in the face of a interest rate cut because bond prices have now risen, right? So the bonds have gone up, the equities will have gone down, particularly if the interest rate cut is in response to a decline in equities that creates an imbalance in the portfolio and forces a systematic rebalancing. That mechanism is far more plausible to me than people suddenly deciding en masse, okay, stocks are cheap based on a slightly lower discount rate. I, I just, that, that mechanism does not ring true, nor does the evidence really support it in terms of its behavior. That's um, fair. I have, a, I have a few questions for you on unrelated topics because I've heard sure. that 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 you uh, have a quite broad range of interest. What are the best books you've read? Best nonfiction books you've read, and outside of finance? Outside of finance, 
Um, well, that, I mean, that's a huge, huge field. Um, you know, when you when you say finance, I think applied economics, right? So um, books that I would encourage people to read if you really want to understand a systems dynamic approach to thinking about things. And so you uh, you and I met through uh, Shreep, um, uh, who has been working with me and has his own podcast. Um, what I've highlighted for Shree and tried to get him focused on is the work of the Jay Foresters, et cetera, on systems dynamics, thinking about the system and the interaction of the parts as distinct from, you know, a discounting mechanism, right? So if I think about how most people think about markets, they think about them from the standpoint of what is cheap, what is expensive, and they're doing a discounted cash flow, and they think that that is actual work. Um, what that is, is that's a rule for one of the participants in a system, right? So if I decide that I'm going to buy stuff that is quote unquote cheap based on my fundamental forecast, what I'm really doing is saying that I am going to react to price um, with less change in my fundamentals, right? So if price goes up, I'm going to presume that my fundamentals have changed less than price. Therefore, I'm a seller. If price has fallen, I'm going to assume that, that uh, you know, my fundamentals have declined less and therefore I'm a buyer. That's just the description of a player within the system. And so thinking more broadly about those systems is really critical. Um, again, the work of Jay Forrester, um, a really simple introduction to systems dynamic thinking and uh, the concept of criticality um, is um, uh, Mark um, Buchanan, uh, his book, Ubiquity, um, does a really good job of thinking about the edge of chaos. Um, if I'm thinking in broader economic terms, Eric Beinhocker's The Origin of Wealth is fantastic. And then if I'm really moving abroad. Yeah, that was of, it. No, uh, you should, if, if you like that, there's a book about, uh, there's a book about the invention of growth economics and complexity, which I'll, which I'll send to you, which is, I, 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 I forgot the exact name, but yeah, on the, on the I, same I'd, I'd love it. Yeah. So Beinhocker is fantastic. I very strongly encourage people to, it's a Bible though. It's huge. Right. Um, the, on, on the, um, easier front, um, uh, I, I really strongly encourage people to, to read history. Um, a, a truly extraordinary book is the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Um, another really amazing book um, in that same context uh, uh, is, um, um, oh God, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Eric, uh, the true believer, um, Eric Hoffer, the true believer does a fantastic job of describing the dynamics of mass movements. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, does, uh, does a truly fantastic job of describing the dynamics of mass movements, which I think is really critical to understand much of what we're seeing politically and socially today. Um, I believe that uh, Martin Gurry's The Revolt of the Public. I have not read that, actually. That is, yeah, that, that describes the exact thing. It's sort of like, if you want to understand why there's so much chaos now, that's the, the book to read. And the book I was mentioning before is uh, a book called Knowledge and the Wealth of Nations. It's a book by David Walsh. Basically describes um, how did our understanding of long-term economic growth change from Adam Smith till today. So it basically says like you know, Adam Smith says that this, this goes through um, 
Ricardo, Keane, Ramsey, and then uh, Samuelson, and up to today's modern uh, endogenous growth theories of Paul Romer. So if you're interested in like, it's it's sort of like, I think most histories of economic thought and histories of, and biographies in general are just um, sort of like t- time machine, different perspectives of the world. So you could as well use the uh, Ramsey model today. It, it, it wouldn't be wrong, just a different way of viewing the world. But yes, you were telling me. No, no. So, so I, I think those are are um, great topics to understand. And I do think um, when when you search for uh, Martin Gurry, you also come up with Revolt of the Elites by Christopher Lash. That's a phenomenal book. Um, and and you know other um, books that I just encourage people to read are books that 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 help them in the way that they think about the world, right? And help them in pattern recognition. Because the really critical aspect of an advanced mammalian brain is its ability to form insights from the patterns that emerge, right? And those can be as simple as the sun rises every morning, right? Days get shorter as the weather gets, as, as the seasons progress and as it gets colder, the day is shorter. Um, those have implications in very simple pattern recognition that help you think and plan out your life, right? Markets are just another tool for pattern recognition. It's why so many people look in markets at price patterns or technical analysis. You're not actually saying, look, you're bound by these particular rules as much as you're identifying um, a system of behaviors and recognizing where people would have engaged in certain behaviors, right? So in technical analysis, a consolidation pattern identifies to you where people have been buying or people have been selling and therefore starts to build a picture of where their pain points might be, right? Um, that's what you're trying to do with that type of work. And so, you know, there's the more pictures that you look at from a mathematical standpoint, and particularly in systems dynamics and complexity theory the better you're going to do at instantaneously garnering an insight from looking at a similar picture. Okay, yeah. I think that's that's fair also because like, people have this cognitive bias towards pattern matching. I'll give you an example. A common trick teachers use in exams is the things they they teach in class, they give the same thing with just a small number changed Mm -hmm. and students, like I think every single exam I've been, there's one question like this where students predictably mess up because they assume it was a previous pattern. But yeah, yep. in general, I agree. I think uh, sort of studying where humans get pattern recognition right and wrong is underrated, especially um, obviously among academics, but especially among people whose main job is pattern recognition. Uh, it's 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 funny because there was a series of books in this maybe ten years ago about you know nudge and. Um, Kahneman's book, Thinking Thinking Fast fast and Slow, slow but like none of that, a lot of the research in Thinking Fast and Slow didn't replicate very well. So there's definitely a market for for reliable psychology research. I I, I don't have the time or the uh, knowledge to do it, but but somebody should. Well, so so actually, um, uh, this is one of the areas of research that I'm working on and, and I've entered into a, a partnership with Ole Peters at uh, the London Institute of, of Mathematics. Um, a lot of the patterns that you're referring to, the work of Kahneman, to, uh, you know, uh, Tversky, et cetera, um, their work is based on an assumption about how economics actually should work, 
right? So you've heard the work of Bachelier, the idea of, um, you know, a system operating from equilibrium status, right? Um, you know, um, most of the economic models and theories that we operate under uh, rely on what's called DSGE, right? So dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that attempt to solve a series of equations to say, this is the stasis of the system, right? This is the, the base level of how this system should work. It's where it should gravitate to. The work of Ole Peters and others um, actually challenges that at its very foundation. So it's similar to my work on passive, which says, hey, wait a second, you have to actually go back and challenge the actual underlying theories that allow passive to be true if you really want to create a compelling case for it. And so this dynamic of inelastic versus elastic markets is where I tend to focus my area on the passive work. Within economic theory, it's important to understand that the work of Bachelier was focused on the idea of markets as replicated in games of chance, in which both parties effectively are aware of the odds, but have different um, demand functions or supply functions associated with them, right? This is that economic dynamic that I was referring to before. There's an alternate interpretation of many of the patterns that we see, which is that they are not repeating games of chance, but that the system is actually linear in its construction because of the dynamics of time, right? And so Ole Peter's critical insight is that there is a huge difference in many systems between what is called the time series average and what is called the ensemble average. An ensemble average means that a thousand people who do the same thing at the same time are gonna have the same distribution as a thousand people or one person doing something a thousand times, right? So rolling a dice would be a good example. If we got a thousand people together, they all rolled a single dice, we would get a distribution that looks exactly equal, right? Because one would come up the same, two would come is, up the same, three would come up the same, et cetera, right? Is the agro, I forgot what it's called, agoricity assumption? So this is correct. So this is the difference. So an ergodic system is one in which the ensemble average and the time series average are the same. Games of chance, like casino games, are ergodic, right? The number, if I roll a dice a thousand times, where I roll a pair of die a thousand times, I'm going to get the same distribution if I do it in a series as if I do a thousand people at the same time, or very, very similar distributions, right? They won't be identical. But if I think about investing, somebody who invests a thousand times in the linear series is going to have a radically different distribution of outcomes than a thousand people all investing at the same time, right? The work of Kahneman, Tversky, and then generally the behavioral economics, behavioral finance world presumes that the system is ergodic. And at its very core, it's a mistake. So again, the work of Ole Peters is pushing on this and basically challenging, wait a second, what you guys are describing as mistakes are only mistakes if you know the distribution in advance, which nobody can in a non-ergodic system. And that's a really important insight that I think is full, that is deeply undervalued in today's world. Right. We operate in a world in which people tend to look at stocks and say the return to stocks is X plus or minus a certain level of standard deviation. Right. So 8% plus or minus, you know, 4% sort of thing over time. That's just a really terrible way of thinking about markets. 
I read a good counter argument to this by Ben Golub, a professor at the University of Washington. We already have some version of this in finance in the in the way of what we call the Kelly criterion. So it's not entirely new. And I think old Peters, I, I, I've read his, his argument and basically says that utility theory uh, hides the assumption that, you know, that, that it's time invariant. It, it doesn't matter if you lose 50% now or 50% later. But if you go through the basic assumptions of utility theory, it, 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 it's, it's a static theory of decisions. It, it doesn't make the sort of, um, you know, the intertemporal, the across time uh, decisions that, that he says it makes. So I'm not fully convinced by that. And I'm, I'm even less convinced by his um, assertion that um, uh, that standard economics doesn't uh, account for it because of the Kelly criterion, which is well known. I'll send you a well, Twitter so, thread so, on wait, that, yeah. so wait a second. I just want to be very clear. The Kelly criterion or the you know Kelly betting method, mm -hmm. right, is a mechanism for converting um, optimal betting under a uh, unknown but edge system, right? So sure. I, I have stochastic or unknown outcomes in terms of the actual level, but I can define sure. the distribution associated with it, right? If I yeah. can actually do that, then I can apply the Kelly criterion to maximize the time series function, which is wealth creation, right? I, that requires yes. me that that requires me to be able to scale bets, right? And so place individual bets that are distinct from the idea of a market return. So remember that a market return mm -hmm. is all investments that are made over time. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a misapplication of Ole Peter's work, right? Again, mm -hmm. if you are an individual investor and your wealth is great enough and your investment opportunities are diffuse enough that you can Kelly size each individual bet, then absolutely that is going to be true. And it is a mechanism for converting the uncertainty associated with a non-ergodic system into something that resembles the outcomes from an ergodic system, right? But that doesn't exist for the vast majority of people. And it certainly doesn't exist in the context of investing in a market. So I, I haven't read Golub's piece, but I, I can already tell you that it is a misapplication. I didn't fully get you on the Kelly Curtin. Are, are, are you saying, I? what is your, your argument that um, we don't have the large number of options and, and a well-defined distribution? Right. So at the core of a Kelly criterion is my ability to choose to participate in a bet and choose to uh, engage in only a certain scale. Right now, that actually requires me to have a risk free asset that I can functionally park my money in and take no risk as I size my other bets. Right. It also requires me to have multiple bets available to me so that I can construct a portfolio of individual Kelly size bets. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, so if I'm I, investing in a quote unquote market and that market under the terms of the efficient market theory or behavioral finance or anything else is an all inclusive, right? So the definition of market from the academic sense is all available bets. I, I can't diversify in that manner. Okay. Uh, wouldn't this apply then more to active managers investing in specific industry ETFs or stocks? Because I, I understand why it would apply to somebody in who's, who's investing in the S and P 500, but uh, somebody has a choice between you know stock A, stock B, or industry A and, and industry B. Um, 
so yes, right. Using Kelly, Kelly's sizing is appropriate for placing discretionary bets. Right. And by definition, as a fund manager, I have multiple choices available to me and I have a base asset of us treasuries, for example, or, or cash, whatever I want to use. Um, I have those options, but the minute I move to a discussion of, well, I'm going to just invest passively, right? Well, am I going to invest on a Kelly sizing basis? And what mechanism am I going to use to define edge as it relates to a market, which by definition under the theory, everybody has no edge, right? Everybody is invested broadly, right? So the Kelly criterion would effectively say, never take that bet. Okay. Yeah, th that makes more uh, sense to me. Although I, I've sent you uh, Ben's piece on the uh, chat. Thank you. And, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, my last question to you, we we're already hitting the, the end of time here is, um, you already mentioned Ben Franklin and the other person whose name I forgot, but uh, across history, who is the person who inspires you the most? Well, inspires is always a dangerous term, right? Because mm -hmm. inspire can can mean I inspire terror and inspire can mean I lift, you know, it causes me to lift myself up, right? Um, in history, I don't think that there are many people who have had, um, you know, I, I tend not to fall into the category of what's called the big man of history approach, right? So I tend to think that there are very few individuals who were unique. I generally tend to think that they emerge into a vacuum that required that type of skill set. Um, I think there are a few people that that may stand apart from that, right? Um, Julius Caesar is, as far as I can tell, probably one of the most brilliant political and strategic individuals in history. Um, there are not many who uh, hit the level of Renaissance man uh, to the point that they can reform a calendar, uh, you know, a, a, a time calendar, the Julian calendar, changing the dates associated with when the harvests and festivals, et cetera, occur, uh, conduct military campaigns while simultaneously maintaining a record of his adventures in a form that was designed to popularize him as an individual, uh, a leader in fashion within the Roman community designed to attract attention to himself, and ultimately succeed against all of that and take control of a republic becoming emperor um, at, at a pivotal point in time. Also, by the way, reforming the economic system of Rome in the process. There's just not many people I can point to in history that had that type of impact. Now, do I think that person will emerge into the power vacuum that exists today? I, I do. I'm terrified of that person. It's not gonna be pretty. Well, I, my guess is they will be actually quite pretty, right? Because they will have to appeal to people across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So those who are drawn to physical appearance and those who are drawn to personal um, magnetism, you know, I would point to the fact that, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton's characterization of George Washington as the leader of the, the new Republic was because he looked the part. He looked best on a horse. Right. Um, again, an individual who I think is underrated in terms of his intelligence, reading his autobiography and his writings, his recognition of the search for influence early in his life, 
his recognition of the role and importance of adopting a guerrilla type warfare when he was trained classically, taking on the mechanisms of the Indians from the French Indian War, which he was directly exposed to in a series of defeats in 1763. It, you know, another individual who had a singular impact in a lot of ways, not because of what he did, but because of what he chose not to do, which is to take the power and become a king. Yeah, it's a fair answer. Uh, to the previous question of where should ambitious people go in finance, where should they go broadly? I, ha I have two years. This, this is a question aimed for me where I have beginning paid a modest salary, have a lot of free time and um, access to the internet. What should, what's the best place for me and people like me to go? Well, I think you just described it, right? So, you know, what I always highlight for people is just that an economy by definition is just people doing favors for other people. Right. And it tends to be in the form of, you know, where that exchange happens in monetary terms, right? So I pay you for that process. That is a choice, by the way. We don't have to define the economy in that way. It was actually Simon Kuznets who invented the system of GDP and national accounting that we refer to. He actually advocated for the inclusion of non-monetary forms of labor and services, things like childcare in a home, for example, or educating your own children to be valued. Now, because that did not, that they were not available for tax purposes, governments chose to reject that. Um, but I think that each of us individually should be very thoughtful about that. And, you know, I recently highlighted on Twitter, somebody brought up the economic possibilities for our grandchildren by John Maynard Keynes. I think in a lot of ways, we tend to underappreciate the importance of the non-monetary dynamics, the free time that you have, the opportunity for self-exploration, the ability to enjoy the information collection activities that exist on the internet. Um, I, I think that we're moving towards that world, right? Broadly described, it's the Star Trek world of post-scarcity, right? Where nobody seems to have a salary, nobody seems to face any real limitations, but you'd still prefer to be captain of the ship than the orderly who gets called and killed when you beam down to the, you know, to the planet surface, right? That is, I, I, I think that's kind of the direction that we're all headed in. One in which um, that free time, that flexibility, that individual satisfaction is becoming more important than the dynamics of scarcity. At least I hope that's the direction that we're moving in. So I, I would encourage people to, to, to broadly seek out areas of interest but always think of it in the context of how am I creating value for other people in this process? Okay. Yeah, that's great. I loved having you here. One of the most interesting conversations I've had. So you're, num you're number 26, if my goes out. When I get to 126, I'll call you back and I'll, I think I'll have much better <laughs> questions. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought you asked great questions. You've clearly invested a lot of time and energy into understanding the work that I've put out there. And I appreciate you sharing in both directions. Thank you very much. Thank you.